today we get the privilege of finishing up the book of Genesis. So we've been in Genesis in the beginning for about seven months, a little over seven months now. We started around the first of the year, and uh, we're going to be tackling these last few chapters, but I want to ask a question first. How many of you have seen the movie Avengers Endgame? Anybody? Yeah? So... A good, good number of you, very good, very good. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to see it. It's, it's just a good, a good movie. One of the things that kind of made it unique was that it really was one of the most anticipated movies, I, I would say, of all time, or definitely in recent history. And the reason for that, one of the primary reasons it was so anticipated was because of the cliffhanger from the previous movie, Infinity War, right? For those of you who have seen it, you remember in that movie, Infinity War, the movie ends with the villain, Thanos, gathering all the Infinity Stones, and with a snap of his fingers, half of the world's population turns into dust. So people like Spider-Man and Black Panther, uh, let's see, Doctor Strange, a lot more, even of the superheroes, vanished into dust, and their, their lives were, were ended. And I'm not going to go into detail about how it kind of followed up in the, the most recent movie, Endgame, but one of the things that just made it so special was it was so anticipated and it was a pretty epic ending to this grand saga of 22 movies in this Avengers Infinity series. There was 22 movies over 11 years, a lot of different storylines, characters, plot lines, all kind of converging into this one movie, which was just just a, kind of an amazing thing. And today we're going to be ending another saga. It may not be quite as exciting as the Avengers Endgame over the next 20-30 minutes, I'm sorry, but the book of Genesis is wrapping up all these characters, everything's kind of coming to a close, and we'll see by the end of today, the last couple of characters, Jacob and Joseph, to name them, are going to be turned, in a sense, into dust, but we've got a little ways to go. You know, we've seen a lot in this book of Genesis, and next week, Pastor Michael is going to kind of do a a summary recap, because we really, I was going to try to squeeze it in today, and as we looked at kind of how we were finishing up, we're like, no, it really deserves a whole whole week just to look back through Genesis and see some of the, the things that we've learned over these last few months. There's just so many people, so many things that, and principles that we can kind of remind ourselves about. So Pastor Michael is going to do that next week. Don't miss it. Don't miss out. Be sure to be here next Sunday. We've really come from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1, if you remember, the story of creation. Now we're towards the end of Genesis in the land of Egypt. So from Eden to Egypt, we find ourselves with this character Joseph that we've been talking about for a few weeks now. He's the son of Jacob. And last week we saw the story of Joseph forgiving his brothers after almost 20 years. They came back to him. They had thrown him into a pit left him for dead, and they sold him into slavery. And Joseph, just by God's providence and God's hand, had risen to power in Egypt. And so Joseph's brothers came to Joseph in the story last week, looking for food and mercy, and didn't know that Joseph was there. And Joseph revealed himself, gave them forgiveness. And today we're going to see his reunion with his father, Jacob, and see kind of how the rest of the book of Genesis ends. And really, it's more than just the end of Genesis. It's really kind of the end of the beginning. You know, we titled the series In the Beginning, but it's really the end of the beginning because as we know, Genesis is only the first book of the Bible. There's lots more books to go. God's plan is really just getting started, even though we've really witnessed a couple thousand years of church history through this book. 
But I want us, as we close Genesis today, to do, do a couple of things. One of, I think it's important for us just to learn, maybe, maybe learn something new about how the lives end for Jacob and Joseph. These are two very important biblical characters. Um, so we see their lives come to a close here on this earth. I want us also to be reminded of God's sovereignty. That, that's been a big theme throughout Genesis, and today is no exception. We're, we're going to see that, how God is in control over the circumstances of life, both the good and the bad. And then also for us, lastly, to have an appreciation for kind of this end of the beginning, like I referred to it, to look at our lives from that perspective. To look at our lives as really, we're, we're, when we finish our lives here on this earth, it isn't the end. It's really the end of the beginning for us, for all eternity. And that should allow us and kind of encourage us to live with a renewed perspective for, for the way we live our lives each day. So we're going to start in chapter 46 of Genesis this morning. That means we've got five chapters to go to the end. Lots and lots of verses. We won't read them all, but we're going to kind of stay at a high level. I promise you'll get out um, not, not, too, not much later than normal, if, if any later. Okay? All right? So just hang with me. We're going to fly by. You can follow in your notes um, there on the app, or if you've got your Bible, feel free to, you know, we're going to be kind of skipping some verses here and there, and I'm going to just try to summarize as best I can. So if you can... Let's, let's keep up. We'll go and get started with really what we see first in chapter 46 is Joseph being reunited. He's reunited with his family and settles them in Egypt. So remember, this is kind of the reunion of Jacob and Joseph that we're about to, to witness. Verse 1 in chapter 46 starts out like this. It says, so Israel took his journey. Now Israel, when I say Jacob, that's what I mean because you'll see in a second God calls Jacob, Jacob. And so I want to call Jacob, Jacob, too, because that's what God does, and it's a lot less confusing for me. So Israel, or Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation." I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So, so a little bit of kind of prophecy there um, from God, just really comforting Jacob and, and letting him know it's okay for him to leave this promised land. Jacob is, is excited to meet his son again, who he thought was dead for 20 years. He's excited to, to, to meet him, but he's a little unsure of this journey. He's about to go on to Egypt because he's taken everybody with him, all his family. You see in the later in that chapter, all like 70 people with a bunch of names that I, I can't pronounce really good, so I'm not going to read them. But it's, it's a lot of people, all his possessions. But they're all coming, and he's like, I, you know, God promised to my father, my fathers, that this land in Canaan was going to be ours. And so if I go, you, you see that, you know, it doesn't really state all that, but based on what God tells him, Joseph, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You can go to Egypt and I will still make you a great nation. So, as the caravan of 70 plus people, and they're all listed there in chapter 46, it's quite the, the road trip, entourage, traveling the several hundred miles uh, into Egypt. We finally see the reunion in verse 28. It says this, He, being Jacob, sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in the land of Goshen, which is in Egypt. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. 
I mean, what a reunion we see here between Jacob and Joseph. The long-lost son who he thought was dead. They, they come, come back together. You can see weeping and just a very emotional thing. And they catch up a little bit. We, we see pretty soon after this that Joseph starts making arrangements for his family, for them to live in Egypt. Um, obviously, there was a great famine going on at this time. And so Joseph is bringing them uh, toward, to Egypt where most of the food was. Um, and as we'll see a little bit later, how Joseph is, is administrating that. But he, he sets this up over these next few verses in, in chapter 47, starting in verse 5, we see, we see this. It says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And then in verses 11 and 12, it continues, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So we see Joseph settles his family in this land of Goshen. And on this map, I know it's not super clear, a little bit small up there, but you can see the, the green text is, spells Goshen. That's the land that the people of Israel, really, Jacob and his family, uh, all 70 plus of them, are, are living in. And that's where Joseph moves them. It's closer to the Mediterranean Sea, um, better for livestock and crops and things like that. So we see that over near Jerusalem, and that's kind of where the promised land is, where Canaan, but hasn't been given to the nation of Israel yet, or to Jacob and his descendants quite yet. That'll happen several hundred years later. But we see they've traveled across the Sinai Peninsula over to this area, just to kind of give you a picture uh, of where they're going. So they're in the land of Goshen, and this is really where the, the, the people... Jacob's family are left, like I said, for hundreds of years. And this is where they grow and become a great nation to the point where as they're enslaved by the Egyptians, they become so great that, you know, later in the story of Moses, the Pharaoh says, we got to, we got to, you know, we got to do something about these people. They're, they're going to take us over. So, and I won't go into that whole story, but that, that's obviously um, how, where the story ends up. All right. So we see Jacob and Joseph have been reunited He's been reunited with his family. They're settled in Egypt. And then next, we see that Joseph provides for the people during the famine. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the famine is, is going on. It's pretty bad. It's affecting not just Egypt, but, but all the surrounding land as well. In chapter 47, we see how Joseph kind of deals with it, how, how, he, how he's dealing with it. He's prepared based on the dreams, interpreting the dreams several years earlier. God had allowed him to. So he, he's prepared, and we see what happens starting in verse 5 or verse 13 of chapter 47 it says this now there was not food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine and Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, to this day, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own. 
as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph, as kind of in his position of authority, was in charge of delegating out the food that had been stored up in the, in the time and the years of plenty, when they had plenty of crops and things like that. They stored them up so they knew this famine was coming because of Joseph's interpretation of those dreams. So we really see here that God is, in a sense, blessing Pharaoh because of Pharaoh blessing Jacob and his family. You know, Pharaoh accumulates through this process, through Joseph's administration, basically all of Egypt. The, the possessions, the, the money, the livestock, the land, a fifth of all future harvests also now go to Pharaoh. And, you know, the first time I was kind of looking at this, I'm like, man, it seems like Joseph is just kind of piling on the people. They're coming to him, like, with no food, starving, and he's like, all right, pay, pay up, I'll give you food if you pay up. Why didn't you just give it to him for free or anything like that? And, you know, but we, as I struggle with that, I, I'm looking and I read some other things, and as you look at the text, you don't see any, like, indication that Joseph was abusing his power or that the people were viewing him negatively. I mean, they, they were very grateful. They were like, you know, we, we are on our deathbed. We don't have any food. We will do whatever it takes to do. And, and Joseph, if you remember, is still working under kind of Pharaoh's authority. Um, he's second in command, but he, he's accumulating this. He's not doing it for selfish gain for, for just himself. He was simply administering kind of his way through this food crisis. And he, in turn, helped countless people from starving. We see this as a little glimpse of kind of God's prophecy of Abraham and his family being a blessing to the nations, which we know would ultimately get fulfilled in Christ. But even here, we see, get a picture of that where Joseph, who's a descendant of Abraham, I mean, he, through, through his leadership, he's being a blessing to the nations by keeping, keeping them alive during these years of famine. So we kind of navigate our way through this, these famine verses. At the end of chapter 47, we see Jacob kind of make some comments about, hey, I know I'm about to die. So just as a reminder, he tells Joseph and his, his other sons, says, hey, I want to be buried back in Canaan. I don't want to be buried here in Egypt, so make sure you do that. And so he kind of spends some time reminding them. But then we see in chapter 48, he spends some time blessing his children and his grandchildren. All right, you remember Jacob had 12 sons. And we have... A couple of grandsons come on the scene here in chapter 48, starting in verse 8. Let's take a look here in these few verses. It says, When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has even let me see your offspring also. All right, so we see here the two sons of Joseph are named Ephraim and Manasseh. All right, and those of you who are grandparents, I heard, I guess it's even better to have grandkids than kids. So he's finding out he's got grandsons, so he's pretty excited. And he wants to give them a blessing. Um, and typically the way that the blessing would happen between a, a father, a grandfather, and the sons, would, would they, he would rest his, his hands on their heads, kind of in front of him like this. And so Joseph brings his two sons before their grandfather to, to be blessed by, the, blessed by him. And when Jacob gets ready to put his hands on the two grandsons, he crosses his arms. 
And Joseph, who's standing there, tries to fix it, tries to say, no, dad, like, or tries to rearrange his sons so that the firstborn son, the right hand, would be on the correct son. And Jacob says, no, Joseph, that he, he corrects him and insists that he did it on purpose. He did it on purpose that both of these sons will be blessed, but that the younger will be greater than the older. And the younger was uh, Ephraim. So, Essentially, through this blessing of these two sons, they, they are, are grandsons, they are elevated to the status of sons. And really, through the rest of the Old Testament, Ephraim and Manasseh are, are viewed kind of, that's, that's Joseph's descendants. Those are Joseph's descendants. Those are two tribes. And so really, it's kind of almost like having 13 tribes of Israel. They're very also reflective of kind of the double portion that was given to Joseph as the firstborn designated firstborn son from Jacob. So after the blessing of the grandsons, it moves on to the blessing of his 12 sons. Uh, Jacob, you know, he's really getting to the end of his life. He brings all 12 together. And and that you can imagine in this room and just thinking about these 12 sons and just the, you know, lives that they've lived, how how they came into this world. If you remember through the the birthing battle of the different, you know, four different moms, all connected to Jacob in some way, shape, or form. They're all born in this crazy order. And somehow God's story and plan was interwoven amongst all these things. He's got all 12 of his sons. And usually these blessings would include kind of the practical matters of inheritance. Okay, so the firstborn gets the double portion, the kind of the prime blessing. And here's what the other sons get back in those days. But it also would include words of encouragement or sometimes prophetic words. And that's really what a lot of Jacob's blessing in chapter 49 is about the really prophecies about these tribes that would, would result from each of the sons. And a lot of them were based on their characteristics, sometimes their actions in life. We, we see, for example, just a couple of them. And Reuben, who's a, the actual firstborn son, we see the verses start out as kind of this poem that Jacob is speaking and blessing to his sons. And he says, you know, Reuben, you are my, my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength. And he's going pretty good for Reuben. You can see Reuben being like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. And then next he's like, but you're unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. And so it goes downhill pretty quick for Reuben, poor guy. And, you know, that was based on some sin in his life that he had committed uh, even a couple decades earlier, if you remember when he actually slept with his dad's concubine, defiling his father's bed. And, you know, that sin obviously had a great... Um, kind of effect on this blessing and resulted in more of a punishment for Reuben. Later in in those verses, we see Judah's blessing, the tribe of Judah, the son here, Judah, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Um, This is a a great prophecy that we see fulfilled throughout Scripture where King David, and it comes from the tribe of Judah, and ultimately Jesus is a descendant from that line. So this, this idea of power, rule, and authority that Jacob speaks over Judah obviously comes to fruition, and Joseph receives some blessing. There's a lot, of, a lot of interesting things in those verses. I would encourage you sometime, if you want, to, to read through them more in, in more detail. Uh, it would probably be best to not do it just with the Bible, but to have like a commentary or a good study Bible, because it, it really, it's, it's hard sometimes to kind of navigate through some of the, the figurative language and things. But we are at a, a unique pers- we have a unique perspective now to look back and see how a lot of those prophecies did come to fulfillment. So Jacob is, is blessing his sons, and then 
he gets ready to, to die. And we see that in the, in the next few verses. We see that Jacob dies and is buried, later followed by Joseph's death and burial. And that's really what the last kind of chapter of Genesis is all about. We see in uh, chapter 49, verse 33, the, the account of Jacob's death. Starting there and over the next few verses, it says, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and it was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming, in case you were wondering. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. So this is a big deal, a, a big deal, a huge funeral procession follows this. Um, we see that, you know, Pharaoh, because he respected Joseph so much and, and had blessed his family, um, really goes all in on this funeral procession as they go take Jacob's body back to the land of Canaan. A huge funeral procession goes those hundreds of miles, and there's an account of that in the beginnings of chapter 50. But as they finish that up and start to head back to Egypt, Joseph comes back to Egypt and he's got his brothers there that are still alive. And we see kind of an interesting interaction between them starting in verse 15. It says this, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, so we see in those verses that basically that the brothers were still a little bit unsure of Joseph's forgiveness. Was it just based on Joseph wanting to please dad while he was still alive? I mean, it had been almost 20 years again since they had been forgiven by Joseph. And so they basically made up some story of, well, let's, let's make up some story about dad saying Joseph needs to forgive us and let's tell him that because we know if he, he doesn't want to go against what dad said, but that sort of thing. But you see Joseph's reaction. Joseph didn't need that. He had truly forgiven him. And he takes a, a great eternal perspective about all that had happened to him in his life. You see in that verse, says, As for you, talking about his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So he re, he's reminding his brothers here that, that God is the one who has orchestrated all these events to allow Joseph to, to be sold into slavery, into Egypt, to rise to power, how could he be mad at them? And I think this is good for us to just remind ourselves about, that we can rest in this fact, as I mentioned earlier, about God being sovereign, God being in control. That even when the bad things happen to us, which they will, that they have a purpose. They have a purpose, and our suffering is not meaningless in this life. And this should provide us great comfort. One of, my, one of my favorite verses, and I know sometimes it gets misused at times, but it, it's such a great promise for us. Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
And this verse doesn't mean that the, the good is the good that we envision. You know, life is going to be pleasant and happy all the time. We know that life will be hard. Life sometimes is painful. But we know that this, this promise still holds true, that, that it's God working it for the good of those who love him. So you think about the story of Joseph, which is one of the kind of greatest biblical examples of this principle. The God working events that, that on the surface look pretty horrible and they don't, they don't really make sense, but God working through them to bring about his plan. I know many of you have probably been through circumstances in, in your life. Maybe you're thinking about some difficult times that you've experienced. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. And you may not be able to see the end and maybe see what God's plan is. But I would encourage you to, to cling to this promise. Cling to this promise. And, and finally, we get to the very end of Genesis. After Jacob has died and is buried, we see this interaction between Joseph and his brothers. And now Joseph's death finishes out chapter 50. We're not going to read any of those verses, but I'll just summarize them. Basically, between verses 21, which we just read a moment ago, and verses 22, there's 50 years. So we don't really have a lot of detail of the last 50 years of Joseph's life. Um, We know that they stayed in Egypt, and he lived to be 110 years old. And at the end of his life, he reminds his brothers of the promise of God. Again, just like his father did. said, hey, God will, will save us one day. He will take us. He will give us our land. So don't, don't forget that. Um, but unlike his father, he did choose to stay in Egypt as his, his body after his death. He told his brothers that someday when they, w- when they would leave Egypt to go to the promised land for, his, for them to take his bones, which they, they would hundreds of years later. So that really wraps up, kind of, that's how Genesis finishes up. You know, we've got Jacob and Joseph, kind of the end of their lives, some other things happening, the blessings and burials, as we titled the sermon. Um, so what do, what do we kind of do with that today? Uh, you know, sometimes these narrative story passages are sometimes hard to, like, figure out direct application, and, and they're a little bit challenging that way. And um, I know it's been a good exercise for uh, myself and the other pastors as we preach through this to to think through, okay, what can we learn? What can we glean from it? I think there's a couple things today, as I, and I mentioned them earlier, but really, I think the first thing is this. The first thing is to remind ourselves that God is sovereign, so that we should live with peace. We should have peace in our lives. When I say God is sovereign, what, what, what we're saying there is God has no limits to his rule. He, there's no, no limits. I know that's even kind of mind-boggling, but he is the supreme authority and everything falls under his control. Everything falls under his control. And, and I, I don't want to get too much into a, a, the conversation besides just kind of saying that it's there, uh, of this, this struggle that we have sometimes with that, that truth, that God is completely sovereign. Everything is under his control. And at the same time, we as humans have free will. We have free will. We, we can make choices. And we choose to do things. And we're called in the Bible to, to do right things and, and make right things. We're not just robots that does do whatever exactly God wants us to do. And how do those two truths exist? God being completely in control and sovereign, humans having free will, they're, they're, you know, it's called this antinomy. That's the fancy word for it. This apparent contradiction, the Bible teaches both of them. And so we have to believe both of them. And it's hard, it's kind of like the idea of the Trinity, God being three in one, one in three. It's one of those things where it's a struggle sometimes to explain and communicate and really wrap our, you know, wrap our heads around it 100%. But I think we, we, if we do what the Bible says, we've got to 
believe both of them. We gotta believe God is completely in control and we've gotta take responsibility for our own actions. And those, those two things can coincide. They can. We see in Job, verse two of chapter 42, it says this. This is Job speaking to God at, towards the end of his life when he had gone through a lot of suffering. He said, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You know, just a great reminder for us that, that God is in control. That God is in control. That there's no such thing as good luck, bad luck, or coincidences in life. There, God is in control. You know, it reminds me of the story of a man in his hospital bed. He was talking to his wife who was next to him, and he was just reminiscing a little bit. He said, you know, you've really been through me through all my, my difficult times. Back when we lost that investment and lost our retirement accounts when I made that bad decision. You were there with me when, when we had the car wreck and when I, I was in the hospital, you were right there with me and even when I lost my job back in the day, you were right there with me and now that I think of it, I've come to the conclusion that you're bad luck. <laughs> so we know that's not true and we know we wouldn't, those of us who are married, we would never say that of our spouse, even though I'm sure all of us have been through difficult times and our spouse has been there with us. They're not the cause of that. They're not the cause of that. God is in control, and that enables us to live with peace when we remember that, when we really live with that, that God is sovereign, so we should live with peace in our lives, not just a kind of a silence and stillness peace, but a, a completeness, a, a soundness is really what the Hebrew word means for peace. You know, in the New Testament, it tells us to, that we should let the peace of God rule in our hearts. What does that look like? I, you know, I, I know that could be a, um, a lot of different things, but I think it means first that we really remember and dwell on his promises. Uh, he will never leave us nor forsake us, especially as we go through times where we lose a job, we get bad news from the doctor, we, we, which our child uh, disappoints us or devastates us when people hurt us or when we mess up, how do we react to those? Do we react in, in a throwing our hands up in the air and all is lost or, or do we trust God and cling to him and his promises? I, I think we remind ourselves that this peace isn't something that is fleeting. This peace isn't something that you know goes away at times. It's based on God fulfilling his promises, which he always will and always does. So that's the first thing. So live with peace. And the next thing is just remember life is short and live with purpose. Life is short and live with purpose. You know, we did encounter in these last few chapters a couple of deaths, both of Jacob and, and Joseph. And I think it kind of begs us to think for a moment about our own lives. I know it's not fun to think about the day we'll die. Um, but there is some value, I think, in, in reminding ourselves that we're not here forever on this earth. This is kind of the temporary nature of our own lives. Our lives will come to an end one day just like Jacob and Joseph, but because of Christ, our, the end of our lives isn't the end. It's really the end of the beginning of the rest of our lives, just like Genesis is in the Bible. So we must make the most of, of our life. How, how do we do that? We remind ourselves that um, our lives matter for eternity. This verse in Psalms 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This idea of numbering our days, what does it mean? Well, it I reminds me of my son, Gideon, who's five, loves numbers and loves days and loves to number his days and calendaring and all this sorts of thing. The last few weeks, 
really, or a couple months, he's become more and more obsessed with this, this concept of like what day is it, what number is it, what number is it going to be in, in this many days, and, and August was a big month, the first, you know, August 1st, I forget which day it was, even though he's reminded me a bunch of times, it was just a couple days in the past, obviously, um, but he woke up first thing, he wanted to go to his little tablet, get his app out, look at the calendar, look at all the days, see how many days till his birthday, which is the 27th, so August, that's why August is so special, see what day school started, he had a lot of big days to note, and, and he, he was, he was um, it, it's, it's like cute, kind of, for the first few times during the day, and then you kind of sleep it off and then wake up, and it, but it can get a little draining, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, but he, he loves to number his days. I don't, I don't think that's exactly what this verse is talking about. It's not being obsessed with your calendar, but I do think it, it means for us to, to really think about this idea of, okay, so there is an end number to my days here on this earth. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here forever. I don't, we don't know when that day is going to be. None of us know. So we need to make the most of it. It says here to gain a heart of wisdom, a heart of wisdom. So how do we, how do, we do that? Well, we, I think we live with purpose. That, that's one way that we count our days. We number our days is to live with purpose. And, uh, you know, we can do that in a lot of different ways. I, I think when you think about purpose, you think about the direction. At least I do. You think you're headed in a direction. You're, you're heading somewhere on purpose. You're not just kind of floating aimlessly through life. You know, if we have no direction or we don't take any initiative in our lives, especially in our spiritual lives, or, or think about any consequences to our actions, that's not honoring to Christ. We, we should know that. We should know that. So I would encourage you to, to find ways to live on purpose, to, to set a plan, whether, that, whether you're an organizer with setting goals and those things, or to, to take time out of your day, week, month, and spend some time thinking about, about your future, Think about how you can kind of set yourself best up to, to grow spiritually, because really that's what matters for eternity. Those are the things that are important after this life and beyond. So I, I would encourage you to just place yourself in, in, especially in ways that get you out of your comfort zone. That, that's one way that I, I know that I've grown the most, um, is getting out. If I just kind of camp out in my little bubble, in my box, and the things that I'm comfortable with, I don't really grow a lot. I just kind of get better at those things. And, but, but I know God calls us to step out in faith a lot of times in obedience. And that, that's a lot of times, almost all the time, out of our, just our comfort zone. So I would encourage you to do that. And, and if you are here today and maybe you don't know Christ, you don't have a relationship with him, I would encourage you to, to think about this point, that life is short. That Really, when we number our days, when we count our days, we don't know what that number is, but we know that it's a finite number. We are not going to be around forever. And sometimes I'm, I'm afraid we kind of live like we think we are. And so I would encourage you, if you don't know Christ, to, um, you, you will never know your purpose apart from him. Apart from him. He created you. God has created you. And in Christ, through his death, resurrection, and his, the perfect life that he lived, that he, he has provided a way for you to get back into relationship with him, to overcome the sin, and ultimately to overcome death in our lives. So I would encourage you to check that out. And if you have questions about it or want to talk about it, you can write on your connection card or do it through the app. Come find me, myself, or, or one of the other pastors. I guess there's only one other one here today. Or any of the other leaders. We would love to just chat with you more about that. Um, would you bow your heads with me as we close today? Uh, Father, we, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for the book of Genesis, for including this 
in the Bible, um, God, that we have an account of how the world began. God, sometimes it's hard for our minds to comprehend some of the, the truths, some of the stories in here. They just seem so, so outlandish, so miraculous. But we know that you are the God of miracles. God, we know that you have created us in your image to be in relationship with you, to, to have peace in our lives, to have purpose. So God, I pray that you help us this week to, to remember those things and to remind ourselves. God, help us to remind ourselves that we won't be here forever and we need to make the most of each and every day. God, help us to bring you glory in that and it's in your son's name we pray, amen.